this podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, my name is Joe Briley. I'm going to introduce our next paediatric bioethics podcast. And today we have Professor Gareth Tudor-Williams, who is a soon-to-be-retired uh, infectious disease professor from Imperial College and someone with a wealth of knowledge in treating paediatric infectious diseases, including, very interestingly, being at the very beginning of HIV treatments in children in the United States, where he worked for a time Gareth's also worked around the world, really, in Nepal and other places, doing a lot of work for children with severe infections. Gareth more recently has been the chair of the St Mary's and Imperial Ethics Committee, and we'll also focus a little bit on that role and what it's like as a paediatrician chairing an adult hospital and paediatric hospitals ethics committee and thinking about some of the differences from looking after a children's bioethics committee. Afternoon, Gareth. Good afternoon. So, so Gareth is in a very interesting position of, of being a paediatrician who actually chairs the Clinical Ethics Committee at Imperial. So we're going to take the opportunity to ask him about his experience of ethical issues as they're affecting adults at the moment. I hope that's okay, Gareth. Yep, that's fine. Go for it. Perfect. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you develop your interest in uh, ethics? So I think it's pretty hard to go through medical school and emerge as a junior doctor and go through those years of, of practice without considering the ethical issues that arise on a day-to-day basis. And, and for me, it was absolutely compounded by my experience in the States. I, I spent five years in America training mainly in HIV medicine in children. And I will never forget at the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, we were providing absolutely what what then was state-of-the-art care for children with HIV. We were doing all of the phase one, phase two studies of the very early antiretrovirals. So AZT had emerged, but we had a, a host of new antiretrovirals that were going into clinical practice, some of which were, I have to tell you, pretty toxic. And we were getting referrals from all over the East Coast and actually elsewhere across the states, and particularly from very deprived corners of inner city areas, both in Washington, DC and in New York and elsewhere. And the families would come down and these were necessarily disadvantaged families. They were by and large, they had everything stacked against them and no healthcare insurance, but they had a child with HIV infection. And we were offering a a one week stay at the NIH, which would be to comprehensively evaluate the, the young person. And the parents would be put up in the Ronald McDonald house with their child. And that was like a glorious palace. And then we, at the end of the five days of investigations, the, the, the senior faculty would sit down with the family and offer them a clinical trial that you know, whatever was, was up and running. And some of those clinical trials were pretty invasive. And you'd ask them to sign a, I mean, I know that this sounds more like research ethics, but to no, be honest, it was bioethics for me. Yeah. And they would be asked to sign a 28 page, very tightly printed consent form. And they'd be told, listen, you have absolutely no obligation if you 
want to sign the form here, then we will fly your child down every four weeks to the, you can stay in the Ronald McDonald house for a night or two. We will do the update. We'll give them new, new supply of medicines. We'll check what everything's going on. If the child needs intensive care, you know, we would offer absolutely everything that we can. And of course, if you don't want to sign on this 28 page document um, that we've given you about 10 minutes to read through, if you don't want to sign here, it's absolutely fine. Go back to the Bronx and don't darken our doors again. And that honestly was a death sentence because at the, 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 that time, the healthcare available for these children in the States was through the emergency department and it was woeful. And and I was, I just found this really needed challenging. And I made myself incredibly unpopular by, by being part of the, um, the, the ethics committee at the National Institutes of Health. And the other problem with that committee was that it was an institutional review board. And and so I was really pleased to see the, us in the UK moving away from that and towards ethical review that was nothing to do, was, was arm's distance from the institution. So I, I, I guess I first came to uh, be involved in research ethics, but then the clinical ethics committee that I found myself able to access at what was then St. Mary's Hospital and is now, of course, Imperial College Healthcare Trust was one of the earliest established CECs in the country run by a visionary guy called Richard Lancaster who had humanity pouring out of every pore and um, and I think it was a great place for colleagues to come with ethical dilemmas that they wanted to discuss and it's grown and it has been a real privilege to head up that committee in my own time but I, I spent quite a long time just as a member and then as a vice chair learning from my my peers and um, and continuously learning. And I, I really celebrate the diversity of the people who volunteer for that committee. And it is a non-paid committee that meets after hours with volunteers from both uh, the all the range of healthcare professionals, but also our chaplaincy are very well represented. We've had representation from our legal colleagues, and we've had lots of really excellent lay colleagues who are very committed and give up their time. And it means that we are not on the payroll of the trust. We have some degree of independence. Gareth, that's a fabulous introduction. I mean, your, your interest coming from the HIV area, I mean, for a single disease, the experience uh, of the world going through that, but it, but it so much has come from, from that disease into the bioethics world. I think in my own area of interest, the early access programs that you, you were part of there. Yeah. Thinking about the ethical issues of, you know, it, it's, it's amazing, the disadvantages there, the I'm sure some of the, the the race issues that you haven't touched on yet would have been part of those conversations too. I guess at the time, oh, absolutely. And I, I think now, you know, we are faced with all sorts of new challenges as the young people who are uh, perinatally infected with HIV are going through their childhood and adolescence and into young adulthood. Many of them, from those early days of the survivors who are now in their early twenties, with some degree of impairments, you know, neurocognitive impairments, and uh, and and. Their then you face all of these capacity issues and whether or not the parents themselves, especially adoptive parents, I think, struggle to be able to allow that young person the autonomy to make 
decisions that the parents simply can't countenance. You know, uh, adherence is a really good example where it's difficult because every pill reminds them of their HIV diagnosis and what they may still perceive as life-limiting or career-limiting um, disadvantage. And so adherence becomes a real problem for many of the young people at certain stages of their development into young adulthood. And yet the parents want to maintain control and want access to their results. And we're saying professionally, look, I'm sorry, your son is 18 years old and it's his choice whether he shares the data with you or not. And th- this has been you know, profoundly interesting and challenging. Yeah, I think I think our, our experience, again, has been probably that that a few children whose diagnostic disclosure, if that's the right term, has been quite late. So, you know, being told they're taking medicines for certain reasons, which might be health reasons, vitamin pills, when they're on complex antiretrovirals. And I think we've had a couple of situations where that kind of the disclosure of a diagnosis when healthcare staff are worried a child might not know the full extent of, of their diagnosis as they hit the early teen years can be really challenging. I think it's a really an interesting area of ethics that that really fits our entire world of trying to get, you know, when, when the child's autonomy, the child's decision making, they need the information to be able to start to develop those decision making skills. Yeah. They're not being provided with them. And I think that's a, a fascinating area. Have you had much experience with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I less so now, but because to be honest, we learned from bitter experience that the sooner you manage to ensure that the young person does know the name of the virus, because you know, of course the name of the virus is, is not important. It's not going to change what they're living with, but it's just to take that sting out of it. So that there is no need for this great big secret. And, and and so you're so right that we learned many years ago that if you leave it until the young person has hit puberty and is beginning to negotiate their way through intimate relationships with their peers, it is hideous. It is really unkind. And being able to arm them well in advance so that, yeah, yeah I've got HIV and I've got this treatment for it. And, and, and for the most part, that is the right way forwards. Yeah, I, I guess I was extending that away from HIV to similar situations sometimes with young people with oncological problems or yeah. issues. And it's all the kind of, you know, how you kind of ensure you, you let young people know what's going on with them and their bodies when there may be reticence, which is understandable from a protective role from parents wanting to shield them from a very difficult situation. I think that's one of the interesting things about you know, ethics in, in children as children get a bit older. But I'm... Yeah. I, move on and ask about your experience being a paediatrician involved with an ethics committee who are seeing lots of complex adult medicine because many of our podcasts up to now have been looking at the the child health role and often we're a bit over focused on that one of the reasons I'm, I'm really keen to hear from you is is that you know your experience of looking after adults with complex problems but bringing your pediatric experience into that what's that like well I think that the principles hang true whether you're concerned about uh, adults rights or you know they're they're you know, respect for autonomy and all the usual things that, that we worry about in the field of medical ethics. I, I, the, the principles are, are, hold true. And of course, for me, it's greatly enriching to listen to the, the problems that our adult colleagues are tackling on a daily basis and, uh, and trying to help resolve those. Uh, always with the proviso that 
the Ethics Committee is there to be a sounding board to provide new insights, but not to dictate what the clinicians are going to do. And I mean, one of the things that I was quite interested to talk to you about was the experience that you have had of involvement of the individuals who are being talked about. Because I mean, so often the adult issues are about people who've lost capacity and therefore trying to think about best interest arguments based on often inadequate representation from the family or where opinions diverge between the family members and the professionals and so on. But we don't tend, the way our ethics committee was always set up was as a provision for healthcare professionals, certainly not just for doctors, for absolutely all of our healthcare professionals to come to to, to have an opportunity to discuss cases that were trouble, troubling them. But for the most part, where, where it's relevant that the, the individuals in the family will have been told, well, we're going to discuss it at the Ethics Committee, but the families themselves are not invited to be part of that discussion. And I know that you've tackled that differently. And I think that there's a lot here to learn from. And uh, I'm quite interested to explore that. We started to involve the parents of children and the children where possible inside that ethics discussion. And, and we've, we've changed the meeting format where we do have a period initially where clinicians talk to the ethics committee members, often to get the, the kind of facts and the scientific considerations, because how, however good we try and be in a, with our clinician's hat on, we do tend to speak a bit of a coded language. And, and it's really useful to have a bit of time for our lay members and also other clinical members who aren't involved in that speciality to truly to truly understand some of the nuances yeah also the value stuff as far as the clinicians understand them but i I often i think as you just said sometimes i i worry if we don't hear from the families specifically we might miss some of the value aspects because it's different hearing from directly from what someone thinks they might think about something. And I think we tend to have that second part of the meeting with the families in there and, and a final summing up bit, and then we will go and talk to them afterwards. But I, I appreciate it is different. And I guess partly that's our managing in, in the paediatric sphere with having the decision makers being parents and the child as, as the child emerges in his autonomy. The standard about involving families is, is interesting. There's just been a survey from the UK Clinical Ethics Network. And I think if I'm right, we remain the only committee that routinely invites families to most of its meetings we do have some exclusions which we we could talk about later and when we looked into this the big worry we had about it what was it might inhibit how freely people speak about things we've done a bit of work with our clinicians who refer and that doesn't seem to be as realistic an issue as we feared or real an issue rather it was the worry about the pressure on families and and we've certainly evolved over time and i don't think we've got this right every time and we've we've moved to having fewer people attend sessions because a couple of the families that have attended sessions have felt very intimidated by having lots of speciality teams and people feeling they should be in the room to have this the, the ethics discussion about a child's particular treatment and you can imagine as you know there are some children who we, we both look after that have very many teams with with a complex medical background looking after them so it's it's sometimes a bit of crowd control and we've learned we have to reduce the numbers there and yes. from families at is mostly positive. I suspect the ones it isn't positive from are often predicated about the underlying health issues in terms of agreement on the right way forward, which probably is not necessarily, as you say, the ethics committee isn't a decision-making body. It's to help those who have to make decisions. So so that's kind of that, that area where you will have some tension where there are difficult situations to resolve, I guess. But yeah. Um, yeah, I, as far as I know, the Children Act remains uh, pretty much in place. And I think we're kind of still working within that. But I, I guess that, that 
makes me think about the because you, you prefaced this when we talked before about wanting to think about what happened during the COVID uh, pandemic and and that whole issue of trying our best to think through what people would want, adults would want, was brought into really sharp focus by COVID last year. And I think our trust, partly because there was a very long-standing and, and respected clinical ethics presence, the, the, the medical director came to me because at the time I was the chair of the committee and asked if we might have a small group who were willing to support the clinical decision support group was what it was called. And this was advertised very widely so that uh, it's on the front page of you know every NHS computer screen you know before you log in just giving you details of how you can contact the CDS the clinical decision support service and and that was led by our um, acting medical directors and they would convene a meeting whenever it was necessary and uh, and from an early stage last year it included a member of uh, actually there's just three of us from the, uh, the the myself and the two vice chairs at the time uh, of the ethics committee were um, involved uh, on a one in three rotor and and there were many many controversies that arose usually about you know much loved much respected uh, elders in the family who were coming in with with just everything stacked against them all of the early data pointing to risk factors that would predicate a very poor outcome with weeks and weeks on ventilators and no guarantee that you'd come off the ventilator and if you ever did and you were still alive with terrible consequences of of the um, long-term ill effects of of intensive care and that was probably the most difficult ethical support and involvement that I've been asked in my career to get involved with. Very often, I mean, actually, as some of the younger people were affected and very badly affected by COVID in the first wave, before there was much recognition of what did mitigate some of the ill effects of COVID, um, they would never have had conversations. You have people in their 60s coming in in established respiratory failure so ill that they were unable to, you know, they were um, practically unconscious and certainly not in with any capacity to make decisions for themselves. And nobody would have had conversations with them, you know, within the family to know what they would have wanted. And, and that was a, a real eye opener. You yeah. know, it's made me have conversations with my family that I probably should have had before. It's fascinating, Gareth, because I mean, your point's well made that this COVID has affected people who would never have even conceived there's a chance of heading into ICU in terms of they're relatively young, they're maybe not very fit, but they haven't had much medical contact before. They haven't been you know, very sick in hospitals. And I think you know, your, the work you did is tremendous. I mean, we similarly set up in the pediatric centres clinical decision support networks, but thankfully children have not been that badly affected by COVID directly. There are lots of indirect effects we might talk about, but you know, a few a few children have been very sick, but but nothing like the great, great amount of adults that came into centers. But I'm I'm fascinated because you, you made the point that Imperial had a very well established, uh, respected and you know, one of the paradigm ethics uh, institutions in in the country when you, you chat through the UK Clinical Ethics Network. But some hospitals had no ethics support and remain 
places where there is no ethics support at all. Others had committees rapidly set up and constituted quickly, often with medical director support out of necessity. Yes. I mean, actually, it would be really interesting to go back and find out what's happened to those committees, whether they have found a, a, a way of, of um, becoming established and, and are regularly meeting now. Uh, it would be very interesting to know. It's that kind of... Yeah. Is it something that would become a standardised uh, process that exists in hospital from now on? The last time we've looked, again, a bit of work we're hoping to publish, we did a survey looking at which of our district generals in the London area had ethics committees. And obviously, we were talking about children to the paediatricians, but we got them to talk to our medical directors. And very few before COVID had ethics or ethics committees available to help them. And yeah, so what's happened. You suddenly have this huge need of an overwhelming of a uh, need for people having oxygen. Even some hospitals are struggling with oxygen supplies. And I, I, I think I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it, Joe? That, that uh, I, well, I don't know about you. In in medical school, we didn't have any formal ethics training that I remember. But uh, you know, I am a dinosaur. Um, we had you know endless, wonderful, rich discussions, um, and it was an absolute apprenticeship. I mean, I, I went to. St. Thomas's. Uh, but you know, I think all the London schools, and I'm sure the other established medical schools, had that kind of sense of apprenticeship. You'd be three months on a firm with a consultant, with two registrars and, and the houseman. You got to know each other so well. And and, and the opportunities for really in-depth discussion were, were, were so much more attainable, I think, with such small numbers. I mean, there were only 48 of us who went through the second MB together. And then I think there were 62 altogether in the clinical years, 62 per year. You know, there's a real esprit de corps. And and that is very hard. But we do, I mean, I'm sure it's the same at UCL and other um, institutions. We do really try and thread medical ethics and the law through the curriculum. And certainly in in the pediatrics, all of the students studying peds are asked to identify cases that raise ethical issues and then we discuss them in small groups that are convened and uh, at at the end which is a really rich discussion and, and good fun but they then qualify and they go off to dghs and somehow medical ethics never raises its head again you know that's absolutely bizarre it's it's um it needs this push to be expanded and for people to to be encouraged to engage their antennae and bring cases that that are difficult for wider discussion. I know multi-professional teams do a very good job, but even within our own, what I consider a a brilliant um, group of people providing care for HIV-infected children and youth... Yeah, we we'd need help. You know, we need external eyes on the issues that we face. And and I, you know, we've certainly taken cases from our uh, HIV MDT to the ethics committee and and benefited from doing so. I I think one the point you raised it's very good, so timely as well. So I've just done a bit of work with our European Society EAP and uh, ESMIC as well, and we we've talked to young pediatricians throughout Europe, so pediatricians in training. And and almost none of them have got ethics education as part of any of their curriculae. So they, you know, it, it's almost you have a bit of teaching at medical school. I was very lucky, and we, I was in Leeds, uh, and we actually had as part of our obstetrics and gynaecology an ethics lecture series. It was incredible. I go now, I just thought it was normal to have that. So I was really lucky uh, to be the obstetricians around it, and it was yeah, got my interest going really, which has clearly developed over time. Yeah. We were, we were lucky. We had philosophical medical ethics. The Ra Gillen book was kind of handed to us uh, by the obstetrics and gynecology lot. It got you thinking. 
And this is the bit I think is really important to even think about those sort of things and then to have it cut off when you get to your kind of professional training in whatever speciality you take is, is really difficult. So I think we've got to look at that. I guess maybe just to finish off, Gareth, I, something that comes from this and we're learning more about it and although there's lots of discussions about moral distress, I, I think moral injury is another good term that's worth thinking about because I always yeah. One of the roles that medical ethics has is actually in protecting staff from feeling no one cares about their views about difficult stuff. It isn't that you will necessarily say, thank you for thinking about the ethics of what we should do with this hard situation. We'll do what you think by a vote or something. But even I think sometimes for staff to think someone's interested in what their thoughts are, to even reflect and and be involved with an ethics discussion, I think can be helpful in itself. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think that of all the functions that we did serve during the first wave. I mean, we did actually reconvene the um, clinical decision support service with uh, ethical input for the second wave. But actually, I think everybody's a whole lot more sophisticated and and, um, better prepared. And, And it hasn't been anything like as busy. But the the, the the real value, and we did we did really try and um, gather data afterwards when the dust settled. The real value was that our colleagues on the front line felt that they were truly supported when you know the, the decision was made that the level of treatment should be at ward level, not on the intensive care unit. And of course, that wasn't a, 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 a ceiling of care. We went on caring for every patient in the hospital, but the ceiling of treatment should not involve putting that patient onto an intensive care unit and a ventilator. The the colleagues who were actually having to convey that, not usually to the patient, because the patients were almost always too sick to to comprehend any of this, but to their relatives, that they genuinely expressed the sense that, that they were professionally greatly helped. And it did lessen that potential for PTSD amongst our workforce. Sure. I guess one thing we will learn and the, the bit that's it's very different than how we would normally think about problems, and I'm sure much will come out from that, but it, it isn't quite the patient-centred um, family discussions that would normally happen, and, and necessarily of necessity, because the situation was so bleak and, and difficult. You know, you would normally have discussions and if parents wanted in the paediatric line and say, I'm not, I don't agree with you, you would have an ethics meeting, then go somewhere else. Or, you know, if you decided not to do something with a patient on the ICU and the family disagreed, you might end up having to get a legal process going. I, I guess because of the sheer overwhelming nature of the first wave, for sure, that may still, we may still hear some stories. We're getting some of them now to start to start the process. Uh-huh. I'm absolutely sure that, that uh, there will be decisions that will be questioned. And uh, and I think that as long as everybody was documenting the, the discussion carefully, they will see that every single decision was individually considered. None of this was like a blanket policy. You know, you score over seven on, on this on this scale and we don't resuscitate you. It wasn't anything like that. Well, I think there's been a recent court, uh, one of the judges has recently pronounced on this, if that's the right term, but blanket policies are, are not <laughs> sensible in this way in terms of rationing because you score X versus Y or a number. The decisions must be individual about the patient in front of you. Yeah, and I, I genuinely believe that was exactly what we were doing all the way through. 
yeah, I, I was working on adult intensive coaching during this time. And I, I would definitely echo that. That's how the decisions were. But I also think one of the things as well as kind of maybe protecting against moral injury, if complaints come back at some stage because of things and the process you have meant that people have at least done their best to try and make sure their decisions were reasonable and proportionate. I I would like to think that would be protective of people who've had to make these hard decisions. You, you never know, but you've done the best you can and you were trying to look after as many people in the right way you can whilst making the right decisions for every patient in front of you. I, I think that the process we've put people through, we may learn more about that at some stage. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see if if the if any of the cases do lead to judicial process and to see just how well the trusts support the colleagues who they entrusted with that that whole decision making process. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? But there there is a necessity argument and doing your best you would hope that anybody who was looking at cases afterwards understood the context in which they were made and i'm sure they would but of course it, it is the case that we still would have the need to treat patients fairly and with respect and I, I that's certainly my experience and what i saw but it is the case that someone might be able to bring something as i wasn't happy with something and maybe they'd be right it, it, you don't know everything that happened that's for sure yeah, and there are there are times when people are, aren't acting in the best interests of patients when they ought to be. So I, you know, we we've seen that from a few individuals over time. So I, I do think it's one of those times that, as a society, we were very vulnerable to to things like that because our our checks and balances were less good than they normally are. And I think that's something that we will find out soon, I guess. But yeah, yeah, there's always learning to be done. Oh, absolutely, Gareth. Bringing that to an end, then, thank you for your time. That's been really interesting. Is there anything extra you'd like to throw into this podcast about your experience or thoughts about the future, maybe? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that there is a lot of work to be done. I, I really do see that there's a big gap in um, the provision for enabling colleagues as they go through their training and indeed as consultants to really make use of the Ethics Committee. I mean, what I have observed, and it is actually really interesting, we we did this 10-year look back. I I'm, I'm re- regret to say that with COVID, we, we all got put on ice and we haven't published it yet but um, when I was handing over the reins of the uh, uh, the ethics committee there were two or three colleagues and, and I were, were looking back over 10 years and what is very striking is that um, the cases that get discussed tend to reflect the specialty that the chair of the ethics committee is in <laughs> and and that's a real problem because you know over the years we've had some fabulous colleagues you know from the intensive care unit and then somebody who was a, a, a transplant surgeon and as the years go by you can see these uh, influences and what's important is that there are some specialties that never bring anything to the ethics committee uh, and i'm not going to, to sit here and name them but i think you can you can imagine who thinks that it's just a load of hot air and not for them nothing like important enough as the incredible um, work that they do on a daily basis <laughs> and therefore never bring never bring don't don't even think that there are ethical issues in their practice and that worries me I'd love to see a way of, um, of of just bridging that gap. I I always I'll finish with a quote from our previous CEO. So I hopefully won't uh, won't get too cross. But he used to say, "The people who most need to bring their cases to the ethics committee are those that don't bring them." <laughs> yeah. Well, enough said. Gareth, thank you so much. Uh, take care, and we'll see you soon. All right. All the best. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 
If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts. 